often I try to express where my sermon ideas come from to give the hearers some understanding of why they're listening to this particular message instead of, say, a message on why Donald Duck doesn't wear pants. But this message on calling evil good and good evil began a week ago this past Friday in the men's Bible study and was fueled along by Alex's last two messages regarding not only false gods, but also the fact that the commandment of not using the Lord's name in vain centers around the fact that each one of us are to live lives that glorify the name of Jesus Christ rather than dragging his name through the mud by our lack of righteous living. In Friday's Bible study, we were in Revelation chapter 2 and discussing the message to the church at Thyatira and especially verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And much of the discussion that morning centered around the word tolerate. And that naturally led to us discussing what we personally tolerate in our lives, in the life of this church body, at work, at school, in our leisure time. What do we tolerate? And each one of us can make our own assessment of what what it is we tolerate that would be considered biblically wrong. What do we remain silent about in our discussions with other people that maybe we should be vocal about? And someone asked the question, do you go along to get along? Is our silence sort of a tacit approval of the worldview that stands in direct opposition to God's view. Anyway, when you combine the concept that we just talked about with the last couple of Alex's messages, especially that last one regarding taking the Lord's name in vain, I think you can see where this message is going to head. We live in a rapidly changing world, one that is on a fast track straight to hell. Daily we should be outraged at the latest thing that is being force-fed to the masses of our American culture. I've listed a few of them that particularly seem to have been birthed by someone with the IQ of a pine cone. For instance, in our culture today, if a dude pretends to be a woman, I'm required to pretend with him. And if I don't, it's hateful and homophobic. People who have never owned slaves should pay slavery reparations to people who have never been slaves. That would make sense. People who have never been to college should pay the debts of the college students who purposely and knowingly took out huge loans for their degrees. People who say there is no such thing as gender are demanding a female president. We see other countries going socialist and collapsing, but it seems like a great plan for us. 
and pointing out all this hypocrisy somehow makes me a racist. So in a society that is clearly attempting to derail anything that remotely resembles common sense, it should be no surprise to any of us that God has been on their hit list for decades now. And they are making some serious inroads into removing him from our society altogether. It seems that God is the number one target for the cancel culture of America today. And I know that some of the illustrations that I used for this lack of common sense we see, that we see rampant in our society today are the result of governmental decisions. But I really want to avoid making this message about political leanings at all, because it isn't. It's not in any manner meant to be political. But nothing makes sense anymore. No values, no morals, no civility. And people are dying of a Chinese virus, but it's racist to refer to it as Chinese, even though it began in China. We're clearly living in an upside-down world where right is wrong and wrong is right. Where moral is immoral and immoral is moral. Where good is evil and evil is good. Where killing murderers is wrong, but killing innocent babies is right. Where darkness is light, and light is now darkness. The fact is that in the past few decades, I've found myself rather dizzy about how quickly things went from unthinkable to unquestionable. It's one thing for someone to say something like, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and certainly throughout history, there have been people that have thought that sort of thing, and maybe even a few that have said that sort of thing out loud. But the difference between those times and today is that this statement has now come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. It's easy to think that the story of the last several decades, at least, as it comes to Christianity and society, is simply a story of moral shiftings. Things that were once considered wrong are now considered right and just vice versa. And we can easily see that society has deemed that morality and morals are now relative rather than absolute. We've changed our moral code to fit our behavior instead of changing our behavior to harmonize with our moral code. Nothing's firm today. We're not on solid ground, and we see our young people shifting from one side to the other. Morally, they're drifting aimlessly and don't seem to even want a compass or a guide. That certainly explains an awful lot. We could blame all of it on a moral shift of Western society but it's a much greater problem than that, much deeper. And it truly has something to do with Alex's message about having other gods before us. This morning I want to start by looking at a story that I think we're all very familiar with. It takes us way back to the very beginning. And from this we'll see 
that the big issues we face today aren't new. They've been around since the beginning of time. Genesis 1 gives us an account of God's creation of the world. And in that account, we see the statement numerous times that God saw that it was good. The Hebrew word tov translates literally to good. I think we're probably aware of the Hebrew expression mazel tov, which means good luck. So I'm guessing mazel means luck. Then in verse 31, he says that it was very good when referring to creation or excellent. Here God is making a statement of his creation. He's saying that his creation is good. We know that good describes an ethical or moral quality. It describes value. It also describes the lack of or the opposite of evil. Well, the fact that God called creation good is in and of itself significant. I want to draw your attention not to the goodness itself, but to the fact that it was God who was making that judgment. And that's really important. It was God who decided that creation was good. Then in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on that day that you eat from, that, from it you will certainly die. And the Hebrew word tov is there for good. God introduced the first rule to mankind. And we could certainly say a lot of things about this idea of rules and stuff, but again, it's not the focus. Just notice, based on the fact that they are going to die if they eat from the tree, that this tree is not good for them. Whatever we can say about the tree, it's not good for food. Now we go to chapter 3, the moment of crisis in the creation account, and the serpent came to tempt Eve into calling, into eating the fruit and then giving some to Adam. And there's a lot of elements we could look at here, but I only want us to look at Eve's statement for now. She had the command of God, don't eat the fruit. She knew because she told the serpent that she wasn't supposed to eat the fruit. She had the word of God telling her that the fruit was not good for her because it would cause her death. But in Genesis 3.6, we see Eve's response to the serpent's temptation. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. And again, the Hebrew word tov is there for good. Up until this point in time, which there wasn't a lot of time expended already, but up until this point, only God made decisions and judgments about whether was something, whether something was good or not good. God said that creation was good, and then he said that it was very good. 
In 2.18, it was God who said that it was not good for the man to be alone. And in Genesis 2.16 and 17, when giving the command about the tree, God calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, the word used here is the simple word for good and the simple word for evil. The same word tov has been used throughout this account. It seems like this ought to be some kind of a clue as to the danger that this tree is. Up until this point, God made the assessment that what was good and what was not good. Mankind didn't have any need to know good and evil simply because this sort of judgment is not man's to make. I have to admit, I sometimes struggled with the trying to understand what was so bad about knowing the difference between good and evil. How can we avoid evil if we don't know what it is? How can we do good if we don't know what it is? It can't be that God wants us to be ignorant. But what this tree did was cause mankind to forget God's assessment of what is good and what is evil and to make his own assessment. It takes mankind from hearing the voice of God and obeying it to looking around and making a determination for himself what's good and what's evil. Eve made the first assessment of something's value not only apart from the word of God, but contrary to the word of God. She assessed by looking that the tree was good for food. I think she was wrong. Eating from that tree was the worst thing she could have done. It led directly to the judgment of God that follows later in the passage. And as we know, it led to the curse that still all these thousands of years later, plagues the earth. Here we are in the year of 2021. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil has been consumed, and mankind is no more capable of telling a difference between good and evil than he ever has been. He's just as much a desperate failure as before. And the reason for this is simple. The assessment of goodness should have been left to God and God alone. For only God is able to accurately make this judgment. Isaiah addressed this issue in 520, the verse we base this message on. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Once again, we have the same Hebrew word, tov, for good. Almost since the very first day of creation, mankind decided that we could do a better job than God at determining what we should involve ourselves in, at what we should not do. And year after year, we've continued to move a little further away from godliness to the point that it's actually invaded the church. Our society says what is right and wrong is up to us. What is good for you may not be good for me. What is bad for you may not necessarily be bad for me. 
But that's a lie. It's the same lie that caused Eve <coughs> to eat the forbidden fruit. It's the same lie that brought judgment on Israel in the days of Isaiah. And it's the same lie that will bring judgment upon us if we buy into it. Just like Eve had the word of God spoken to her, God actually told her that the tree was not good for her. We have the Bible. We have God's word. He knows what we'll end up calling good and evil and evil good. He's told us what to call good, what to call evil. We don't have to rely on our own judgment for those calls. The Bible isn't a book full of suggestions for our lives. It's God's judgment of good and evil, his decision of what's good and what's evil. But what's happened is that even the church begins to rationalize our disobedience of God's word by calling it out of touch, archaic, not keeping up with the times. We make excuses. We even have the audacity to say things like, God has already forgiven me for it. God's grace covers my sin, past, present, and future. God is love, and he loves me in spite of my sin. I think it was Randy Alcorn who wrote, any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encourages us to live in sin. On the contrary, it empowers us to say no to sin and yes to truth. There's a deceptive, deadly, and evil brand of false grace out there, prevalent within the Christian church. And it's a grace that says yes to sin and no to truth, calls evil good and good evil. In fact, it's a guilt-free, prideful, gay-affirming, gossiping, slothful, pro-choice, kids will be kids always use protection, God will forgive my abortion, nicer than Jesus kind of grace that's leading millions of people who honestly think they might be living a Christian life. It's leading them straight to hell. So let me ask the question, what sins are we tolerating? Is homosexuality a sin or is it not? Of course it is. God defined it. Do we really believe that? Or do we rationalize away the sinful activity by saying things like, God still loves them. God made them that way. God wants us to love people. It doesn't matter what gender they are. How about this one? Is sex outside of marriage sin? God says it is. But do we really believe that, or do we rationalize away the sinful activity with such thoughts as we love each other, marriage is just a piece of paper? Or maybe we already made a commitment to each other, so really we're already married. Or how about, do you really think saying I do makes any difference to God? Here's a popular one. 
I don't need to go to church. I'm closer to God in the mountains, at the river, on the back porch, in the garden. You pick it. But God told us what was good. And we choose to do it our way instead. We negate the word of God that tells us not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together or to encourage one another to love and good deeds because I guess we know better. We have voices all around us. We have people who whisper all kinds of Satan's ideas in our ears. Our current society is so turned against God that just living here in this world, we are bombarded with messages that are contrary to God's word. Do we listen to those messages? Do we think that since sin is so accepted in our society today that God went ahead and gave us a past called evil good? Do we think we're smart enough to determine the validity of the Bible based on our own personal experiences? Which brings us back to the Garden of Eden and back to what the biggest element of obeying God's standards of good and evil is. Whether we understand God's standard or not, it's the element of faith and trust. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, the word of Christ. Faith comes from one thing, hearing God's word. Eve heard the word of God. She had the word of God that said, don't eat. She heard his voice. But she also heard another voice, and that was the voice of the serpent. And in the beginning of chapter 3, the serpent, makes, the serpent begins to make Eve doubt the word of God. He begins to make her doubt even the very character of God. Instead of God making a judgment of good and evil for Eve, now she perceives it is God manipulating her. She listened to the voice of the craftiest of all creatures instead of listening to the voice of the God who had lovingly created her. She allowed herself to doubt God's word. You see, for her, it was no longer of a decision of did God say that or not. She knew he did. But after having the knowledge of good and evil, he chose to listen to a voice that did not know instead of the one voice who did know. The present American philosophy has redefined truth as whatever seems right to the individual. We now blissfully say to one another that what is true for you may not be true for me, or declare that there is no such thing as absolute truth. It has replaced education with indoctrination, molding young minds to hate and demean anyone and anything that would dare to disagree with them. We have redefined the intrinsic value of life, rendering the unborn, the elderly, and the infirm as insignificant, unnecessary, and a burden to society. 
as Margaret Sanger, the founder of the Planned Parenthood, referred to them as nothing but human weeds. We are absolutely surrounded by messages that need to be analyzed in light of God's word. When our children go to school, they're taught that God didn't create this world. It just happened. They're taught that, by, that being gay is something that's perfectly normal. They're taught that we can choose alternate lifestyles and even choose our own gender. They're taught through safe sex appeals that it's okay for them to be sexually active before marriage. And they have a choice whether to believe these things even though they disagree with God's word. We hear voices about faithfulness to spouses and families, how to raise kids, how to be successful, and a host of other things. And more often than not, the messages we hear conflict with what the Bible says. The trouble is that many times these messages make sense to us. Many times we hear voices that sound like friendly voices. But these voices have only one thing, one aim. Their only goal is like that of the serpent in the garden, to discredit the voice and the word of God. The voices that contradict God's voice get us to look at our circumstances instead of just the truth. They may get us to look at our circumstances and evaluate God's word in light of our circumstances. So we may look at something that the Bible says and think that it's a good suggestion. It may even work in a perfect world. It just doesn't work in our real world. That's a deception that Satan wants all of us to fall for. Scripture certainly puts each of us on notice that in the end times there will be a great falling away from the church of Jesus Christ because there will be a great deception that will blanket the earth is what scripture says. And we especially need to take notice since that deception of the end time will be far worse than anything we have ever experienced to that point. And if we take an honest look at things that are happening in the world right now, we might consider the possibility that we are indeed entering into the worst phase of deception. Because it's one thing to sin. We all sin. But it's a whole different level to call sin good. That's deception of a much higher level. I believe that with each sin that we commit, there's a level of deception that we surrender to that opens the door for that sin. A deception that tells us it's all right to do this particular sin. Won't hurt anything. In the case of Eve, the deception was to be like God. And to do that, her and Adam had to eat from the knowledge of good and evil. After Adam and Eve's sin, the Bible records that Adam and Eve hid from God as he was looking for them in the garden. And I think we can understand that response because after we sin, we feel guilt and shame. And we don't want everyone to know what we've done. Let's just keep it between God and ourselves. 
You want proof? Would anyone care to stand up and come up here and tell us the worst sin you've ever committed? Yeah, me either. But as we approach the end times, deception goes to a whole new level. It's not only going to tell you that it's all right to sin, it's going to tell you that there's nothing wrong with that particular sin. The deception is going to replace the feelings of shame and remorse with an attitude that says, it's not a bad thing I did. After all, everyone's doing it. I don't see anything wrong with it. I can do what I want to as long as I'm not hurting somebody. It's one thing to sin in private, but it's a whole new level of deception when it's acceptable to bring that sin out in the public's view for everyone to witness. Didn't our country just openly celebrate Gay Pride Month this past June? Seems like a few years ago we even lit up the White House with rainbow colors to celebrate sin. People no longer want to be recognized for their accomplishments. They want to be recognized for their sin. And certainly none of this comes as a surprise to those who are even vaguely familiar with God's word. Because the Bible warns of some of the signs of the last days in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such people as these. Any of this sound vaguely familiar in our world today? We seem to see this being fulfilled on a daily basis. As of this past Thursday, I looked up the statistics, as of this past Thursday, 364 homicides have been committed in the city of Chicago this year. One city. Again, as of Thursday, 120 law enforcement officers have been killed in the United States so far this year. The Federal Aviation Administration has received more than 3,600 reports of unruly passengers this year. All of it sounds like ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, and reckless. In times past, you might have lacked self-control, but you tried to hide it a little bit. You reined it in in public. Today, people lack self-control, and they somehow see it as a badge of honor to be displayed to the whole world. And it's easy to look around and point out the problems of the world, of this country, and it's quite another thing to have an answer. How do we respond to it? Especially a godly answer that could actually impact our little portion of the world. We've seen the warnings that God has given. We've seen the response of mankind. Possibly what we haven't seen 
what we haven't been witness to thus far is what God expects of us in the midst of evil being called good. And I think we can see an answer in a couple of passages that we haven't yet considered. Ephesians 5.11-13 tells us, Do not participate in the, useful, in the useless deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of things which are done by them in secret. But all things come, become visible when they are exposed to the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. According to this passage, we're supposed to not only participate in evil, but expose it. What does that mean? We're supposed to go around with a clipboard and take copious notes, what everybody's doing here in the valley, and send it into the Valencia County News? Probably not. But we get something of a clue on what we should do in verse 13. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Darkness and light. Don't participate in darkness. Instead, expose them by shining light on them. Matthew tells us just how we're to do that in chapter 5. You, you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're the light. Our light has to shine before people. It has to expose the darkness. Just like Alex reminded us last week, we run the risk of taking God's name in vain when we live lives that don't reflect the life of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be the schoolyard bully or town gossip telling everybody who's doing what to expose sin. We accomplish what God is commanding us by living lives that are reflective of Jesus Christ. Lives that shine light in the darkness. Lives that impact the world one heart at a time. If Christ's church would just realize, would just take to heart the fact that we have the answers, God clearly gave them to us and he expects us to use them in a dark and sin-filled world. He's clearly defined good and evil, and we don't ever have to make that call. We just need to trust that he said it and obey it. One of the problems is the church, in the church today, is that most of our members are spiritual schizophrenics. We're undercover Christians. In the workplace or at school, or out in the public, we wouldn't be seen as much different than anybody else. But we can be total Jesus freaks when it comes to church on Sunday morning or a Bible study. We're light. Light's supposed to shine in the darkness. We're the remedy. We're the messenger. We're God's plan A. And there isn't a plan B. 
When we reflect Jesus Christ to the world, it's the antidote to calling evil good and good evil. The word of God does work. We just need to be faithful.